who was from it. They sent this telegraph to a bishop. And it said this simply. All is discovered. Three at once. And they sent that telegraph to the bishop, who upon receiving it, packed his bag, left the country, and has never been seen since. Right? He says, see, look, everyone's got stuff to hide. Interesting thing, though, I think Canon Doyle had something to hide, because I think that's a little bit of a white lie. You see, about 13 years prior to that, someone in England, England published a book of funny little stories. And they told a story about a bishop who had some curates under his care who were misbehaving. These were young men of ill repute. They were taking advantage of their office and, and uh, folks he didn't want to have around, but he couldn't just fire them. So he wrote each one of them, all six of them, a note that said the same thing. You've been discovered. Lie. And they all left. His problem was solved. Well, I think that bishop stole the idea from here in the States. In the Kansas City Times, another eight years prior to this, this is back in 1876, they said this, there was a sudden and unexpected spread of the gospel from Kansas City. A Saturday night, a little girl under the influence of the flesh, the world, and a little bit of the devil, wrote letters to all the pastors in town saying, you've been found out. And they all left. Nine went to Kansas City, the others went west. Well, it's an interesting story, isn't it? I think we like maybe to believe that story just a little bit because we like to think that maybe people do have something. We know that maybe we have just a little something to hide. And we take comfort in thinking that maybe other people have something really bad to hide. Right? It doesn't, uh, maybe it's not as bad as ours. C.S. Lewis put it this way, talking about this thing. He said that we all know, we all live under this sense of an obligation, of a code of conduct that we ought to live up to. And we also know that we don't live up to it. Right? I was a couple of weeks ago, well, this was before Christmas, uh, one of our off-campus programs, a house of folks that do immersion wilderness leadership stuff, invited me to come and speak to them. And so I went up and I had dinner and we spoke afterwards and they were laughing over the dinner table about something. I said, what, what's going on? And Matt Loy, who's, an, who's the RD of the house and also an instructor, he said, oh, he said, last week at house meeting, I gathered folks together and I started pacing around like this, really agitated. I had a furrowed brow and I was upset. And I could let, I let them know that something was wrong and I was angry about it. So then I finally said, does someone have something they want to tell me? The students kind of nervously looked around at each other and hung their heads. And one said, I broke that bowl in the kitchen. And another one said, yeah, I, I ripped that cushion on the futon and covered it up with the afghan. Somebody else said, I know I've been leaving the kitchen messy. And finally one girl goes, I haven't been running as much as I ought to. And I, <laughs> and I haven't called mom. <laughs> we do have some things. And that, that doesn't mean that we all have a bad conscience. And because the ironic thing about guilt and shame is this. That sometimes those folks who feel the most guilt or that are the most guilty, the folks that really are guilty, feel no shame at all. And there are others of us that live in shame 
for things that really entail no guilt. It's hard to be honest. This morning's passage, whoa, that's a big voice there. This morning's passage comes from 1 John. Let me read these verses to you from chapter 1. This is the message that we have heard from him and we declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But if, however, if we claim to be without sin, then we just deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If, however, we confess our sins, then He's faithful and He's just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. There are two things going on there. And one is the guilt of our sin. And the other thing is our self-deception in covering it up. How many of us have sinned? Yeah. We're all in that boat. That's one thing that we can't cure on our own. Only God's forgiveness. But then there's this other move that we sometimes make, which is not being honest with ourselves and not being honest with each other and not being honest with God about our sin, about the stuff that's really going on in our life. It's not too uncommon, is it, for a politician uh, to be involved in some type of thing, corruption or embezzlement or misuse of office and, and, and do some things that harm other people and even harm uh, country, cities or states or even the whole country. But often they get busted. Why? Because they lie when it's being investigated. And it's that lying, it's that covering up that gets them caught. Wow. What, what economy do we trade in? Is it truth and the way things really are? Or is it deception in the way we want things to be? You know, it's, it's sad to me. It breaks my heart when I hear from students do stuff. Like, you guys have to, do you have a required chapel? Do you have to attend so many? Yeah, so we do sometimes. And it, it breaks my heart when I hear students live to one of my staff members or to other students or even right to me for the sake of getting this chapel credit. Oh, see, I was here the whole time. No, you weren't. I saw you over in the cafeteria eating your burger. Oh, well, yeah, I didn't have breakfast. So you're going to tell me a lot. You're going to compromise your name. You're going to trample on your integrity. You're going to give me a message that says, I am an untrustworthy person. So you can get a chapel credit. Wow. Matt is the guy I worship with at church. And he's been a Christian just about two two years about now. Matt uh, is he's kind of a rough looking guy. He shaves his head. He has a full beard. He has these big gauges in his ears. You know what those are? Big things. And he's got a lot of tattoos. He's got two big stars, one on either side of his neck. One's like red and black, and the other's yellow and green or something. And he's got, uh, on his forearms, he has a big hammer, a ball-peen hammer, and a, and a wrench. 
over here. He's a tradesman. He fixes appliances for a living. And they're beautiful. They're all in color. And he's got these roses on his arm, which are just big and beautiful. you know. And I asked him, I said, Matt, tell me about these tattoos. And he talked about them. He said, oh, everybody wants to know about these. He says, but can I show you the tattoo that means the most to me? And I said, sure. And he just holds out his hand. He says, now I want you to know that I had to think a lot about a tattoo on my hand because I'm a tradesman. And not just a tradesman, I'm a person. I express myself with my hands. My hand is the first thing I extend when I greet somebody. My hand represents, I can never hide this in a job interview. This is me everywhere I go. That's it. It's like my face. So I said, he said, in fact, I had to talk to a tattoo artist. We talked about it a long time before he, he put this on my hand. So here's what it is. On the right hand, it says words. And on the left hand, it says bond. And on his thumb, his right hand, it says is. Word is bond. He says, you know, truth matters to me. And when I say something, I mean it. I want to be that kind of person. It matters to me in my trade. People have to trust me. They have to know that when I say something's wrong and I'm going to fix it, that something really is wrong and I am going to fix it. When I say I fixed it well and right, they need to know that's right because things could happen. People could lose money. People could get hurt. Houses could burn down. If I don't do what I say, I'm going to win. It matters because my word is my now, Matt got those tattoos before he became a Christian. He says, now, they, they take on another layer of meaning. Because it's God's word that binds me to him. Wow. And I tell you what, he's a joyful guy. He's a joyful guy. He's not perfect. He's not sinless. But he lives by that daily and keeps short accounts with God. And why do we lie? Why do we lie? The simple answer is this. Because we want people to think differently about ourselves than we really are. Or we want people to think differently about the circumstance than the way things really are. Well, okay. That's kind of like a definition of a lie, right? Misrepresenting yourself or misrepresenting circumstances. But why do we misrepresent things? I think there are three deep motives that drive us to sometimes be deceitful with ourselves and with others. And one is that we have shame. We're ashamed of who we are. We're ashamed of what we've done. And we think that if other people see that and know that, they will reject us. They won't like us. That I won't be acceptable to people really know. I had a student in my office this week. We spent an hour talking together about all kinds of stuff. Um, and when we were praying together at the end, and just in the very last second, was, I said, listen, I believe in you. I know that God has a future for you. I know that good things are coming, and that you're going to work through this stuff, and God has a purpose for you. She shook her head and she said, it's no need to be like Because she was ashamed. Another thing that does is fear. We fear the consequences of what's going to happen. What's going to happen if people know the real deal, right? You fear that your professor may not give you a second chance. 
to take us to that test. If he knows the real reason, you weren't at the first time to take the test, right? You might be afraid that he'll kick you out of the class if he knows that that paper you turned in really wasn't your own work. You're afraid that your girlfriend is going to drop you, and even worse than that, she's going to be mad at you for life if she finds out what happened last week. We're afraid of what's going to go down if the truth be known. And one other reason that we lie is this, is we desire something. We want something. We want something that we think is going to make us happy and fill our needs and get us where we want to be, so we lie to get there to desire. You know, the problem with all three of those motives, each one of them backfires. When you lie... You know that you're lying and you're even more ashamed of who you are. When you cover when you can't be honest with yourself, about yourself, with other folks and before God, then you you have another layer of things to be ashamed of. And when you lie, you have one more thing to be afraid of. Trying to manage that situation so people think of you in a certain way or understand environment in a certain way. But then you lie, you've got one more thing you've got to keep track of to make sure that you manage that. And the fear just grows. And the same is true with desire. Lies might get us what we want right now, but it doesn't get us what we really mostly want. What we really want. We want to be known who we are, who we really are. We want to be accepted and loved. We want to do work that we're really proud of. We want to be appreciated for our contributions that are truly our contributions. We want to belong to a community of which we're fully a part, free to be ourselves. Deceptions never pay off. But deceit comes at a high cost. Psychologically and physically, there have been a lot of tests done to show what happened to folks when they lived in deceit. There have been psychological studies that suggest this, that people who do not express their emotions freely are at a higher risk of cancer and heart disease than those who let them go. There's uh, studies that have shown that people who keep secrets are more prone to anxiety and depression, experience more headaches and backaches and carry around a lower self-esteem than folks who don't. There's been some studies that show the effort we put into, the emotional and cognitive effort we put into managing our image with other people by little deceptions increases the level of stress in our lives and with all the stuff that comes along that stress. When I was 11 years old, I didn't belong to the Boy Scouts, but we had this thing in our church, a Baptist church, called Stockade Boys. It was like, it was like Boy Scouts for Baptists. You know? And it was, a, it was a good-sized church. There were probably 60 or 70 kids in this junior high age range. You know? And when you go to Stockade Boys, you get this little book, and the book kind of walks you through a year of devotional readings and activities to do, learning how to tie knots and... Uh, do different things, read biographies, and there's this one chapter, section on physical fitness. 
And you're supposed to do stuff like run and do sit-ups and pull-ups and push-ups and keep track of your progress over the weeks. So I applied myself to that, and over two weeks I learned to do some things a little bit better. And one of the things I learned to do was to kind of cheat. I kind of grew a little bit lax in the way I was reporting my progress. You guys know what I'm talking about when you do push-ups like this, you know? Instead of really, well, I kind of learned to do push-ups like that. And I could, believe it or not, my scrawny 11-year-old self could do 70 push-ups. Well, that's what I put down, 70 push-ups. One Wednesday night, we're doing stuff, and we're running around the gym and playing games and dodgeball and tag and stuff, and there's probably 60 kids running around, and up at the front of the gym is a little stage and all of our books and hats and coats are up there. And it's getting to the end of the evening, and one of the adults, a guy who's a, who's, he was a, uh, he was a carpenter, a serious guy, someone who didn't mess around. He was nice enough. He was there investing in guys, but he was a no-nonsense guy. He just walks over, and he picks up a book. And he starts flipping through it. And then he whistles loud to get everyone's attention. And he says, in a voice of shock and alarm, Hey! Guess what I just found? I can't believe this. I was just flipping through a book and look, it's this page about the push-ups. I like turn to jello, you know. I'm thinking, oh my God, that's my book. He says, it's, it says right here that somebody can do 70 push-ups. And I'm thinking, okay, God, let me die right now. Just die right now. <laughs> Maybe we ought to have him show us right now that he can do 70 push-ups. Oh, my gosh. So I have been sweaty, you know, because we're running around. It's like ice water now. I'm starting to tremble. I'm thinking, ah. Well, he didn't, he didn't push it any further, but I'll tell you what. That was a wake-up call. These little things come, right? Stress. But beyond psychological and physiological costs, there are spiritual costs. The word secret in Latin, the credum, is tied to this other word, sesternir. Sesternir means this, to tear, to rip apart. And when we keep secrets, when we're less than fully honest with ourselves and less than fully honest with God and each other, it tears us apart. It separates us from what's really true and what's really going on. Breaks our fellowship with one another. In fact, we can't really enter into true heart-level fellowship with one another unless we're honest about where we are. It fragments our own sense of self and you begin to wonder, who am I? Who's the real me? It separates you from a free uh, and powerful sense of God's presence in your life. It destroys true fellowship with one another. And it also makes you dumb makes you blind. One of the consequences of deception is judgment. And judgment comes in the form of blindness. You keep reading in 1 John and you'll see that those who do not practice the truth stumble around in darkness. Don't know where they're going because of the darkness. We do dumb things. We say dumb things. Remember what Tiger Woods said when Officers pull up and try to get him out of his car. 
fish because my wife loves me so much that she was swinging that five iron at my head. She wanted to help me out of the car. I didn't believe that. When I was in college, I was doing a project. I had to put a bunch of slides together, and there was no web. You couldn't download JPEGs and put them in a PowerPoint. You had to, like, find pictures and then take pictures, you know, make little pictures of them in slides and shoot them. And I was in the library, and I found a copy of Rolling Stone that had some great images of the year in review. I'm going to, that's great. I'm going to use this magazine. For this. Problem is, you can't check magazines out of the library. Well, I'm going to try it anyhow. So I put it in my backpack. And I go and I hand a woman a book. She stamps it. I go through a little beeper thing and it starts beeping. You have something else in that backpack? I've got a tin of mints. Maybe that's it up. I've got a little tape recorder. Maybe that. What about that magazine? Is that your magazine? I really want it to be my magazine. <laughs> we do stupid things because we stumble in the darkness. We stumble in the darkness blinded and we don't practice the truth and live in the truth. Well, what do we do about that? Here's a few suggestions. Make confession. James 5.16 says just confess your sins to one another. Make it a habit. Different churches do this in different ways. Some do it privately in a booth with one individual. Some do it corporately and everyone reads this prayer of confession together. It happens differently in different ways. But confess your sin. Make a clean account. Who do you confess your sin to? Here's a rule of thumb. Only talk about that stuff with people who are part of the problem or people who are part of the solution. Don't put it on your Facebook status. You know, don't tweet about this. People who are part of the problem or people who are part of the solution. Who might be part of the solution? Folks who can offer you insight into what's going on in your life. Folks who will be discreet and won't be spreading your stuff around. And finally, folks who know forgiveness in their own life. So they can impart to you a sense of God's grace and forgiveness. So share your stuff. Come clean with that. And here's how you do that. Here's some suggestions for how you do that. One, be expectant. Be expectant because God promises us His forgiveness. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be courageous to step out and own that stuff. And knowing this, i got a, a friend whose pastor says this all the time, Hey, cheer up! You're a lot worse than you think. But God's love is greater and more extravagant you will ever imagine. Be expectant of that forgiveness. Be grateful for the freedom that's going to be yours in it. Another thing is be exact. you got to confess something to your roommate. Don't just say, hey, uh, you know, things haven't been great between us, so I just wanted to say that. No. Be exact. Be exact. Things haven't been great because I've been jealous. And I'm jealous because I like the way you look and I like the friends you have. And because I'm jealous, I've started treating you mean. And I've started becoming ugly myself because of the way I'm treating you. But really, you're a beautiful person and I'm glad you're my friend. I'm sorry I've been acting this way. Be exact. If you've been through a 12-step program, 
You know that one of those steps, I think it's number four, is to make a fearless and a searching moral inventory of your life. Be fearless and searching. Point this stuff out. And the final thing is be earnest. Don't confess stuff unless you really need to repent of it. Right? I have a, my, my son, I've got three boys. One's a, a high school, a college freshman. One's a junior in high school. One's a little guy about sixth grade. And uh, my middle son says to me this. He says, hey, Dad, listen to this. There's a kid who wants a bicycle. So he prays. God, give me a bike. God, give me a bike. I want a bike. Give me a bike. And, but then he remembers, oh, that's right. God doesn't work that way. You can't just say, give me something. So he goes out and he steals a bike and then he prays for forgiveness because God's a forgiving God. <laughs> right? Be earnest. And if you, don't, if you don't have an appetite to be really holy, ask God to give you that appetite. St. Augustine in his confessions said this, when I was a young man growing and trying to grow in spiritual life, I realized I, I had this prayer. Lord, make me chaste. Lord, make me chaste. He says, but now as I look back on that prayer, I realize this is what I was really praying. Lord, make me chaste. But not yet. <laughs> you know? Don't want to, you know. So, be earnest. And if you don't even have it in you to be earnest, if you don't even have the courage or the appetite to live a free and an open and an honest God to give you the taste for that. Because the promise is this. That God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. He invites us into that light. Though we are all sinners, yet if we just confess that sin, He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and give us everything. And we can walk in the freedom Break the power of sin over us and find new freedom. What a great promise. What a great God. Please pray with me. Lord, how can we approach you, the one who dwells in light, when we have been fragmented and duplicitous at times? It's only in the confidence of Christ our Lord who's gone before us and who's made a way, whose sacrifice forgives our sins, who extends to us the freedom of a new life, an abundant life. Lord, let us walk more fully in that, even in this day. Lord, might we be attentive to your Spirit's nudging and prodding to see ourselves truly, to look squarely in the mirror, receive what you would show us about ourselves. And if where we need to make amends, you show us that too. Will we be honest with one another so that we can walk in the powerful fellowship of your spirit with one another. So we ask this so that your church can grow up, so that we can know the abundant life that you want us to know and that you would be glorified in the way we live. It's in the name of Christ the Lord we pray. Amen. Go in peace.
Creator planned 
worship Him in humbleness. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise 